We pick it up today in being in verse 12. Would you read along with me starting in verse 12 today? Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was exceedingly, I'm sorry, that he was deceived, or you might have mocked or toyed with, is the word that we have there, by the way, in the By the wise men was exceedingly angry when he set forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Yeremiah, the prophet, saying a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Pray with me, would you please? Thank you, Lord, for your great power and might, for the beauty and comfort of your presence, for the blessing again of being a nestled, able to nestle into your arms and to watch you do great work. So I gladly again thrust myself to you and ask you to take this mortal frame and fill it with your glory, not for my own sake, but for yours, by ministering now, speaking a bespoke word to each of us individually at our areas of need, as well as corporately as a family. Lord, you know every need here. You know every vapor of water on our breath. You know every speck of dust under our shoes. You know every need. And today here, I know you desire to meet every one of us right where we're at. So, have your way. Lord, keep me clear and concise. Clearly some of this stuff, Lord, if it isn't spoken right, could really spin and create much more heat than light. Don't allow that today. But speak that which ministers now. I pray for that fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that you would be seen. 
Empower me that you would do the work. May we be captivated and have so much fun in your word. May we be genuinely touched, genuinely ministered to, genuinely reached. Commit this time to you every minute of it. Have your way in length and in breadth and in depth. It's all yours. May we worship you in spirit and in truth as we study your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the authority. Let the Bible be that for which you test and hold all things to be true or false. If I were to title this, I would title it The Age-Old Threat of This Young Child. There are two realms the Bible makes very clear. The tangible earthly realm and the invisible spiritual realm. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.18 that all things which are seen, by the way, are temporary. There are many things, there are much things, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There are now two kingdoms. Jesus speaks of a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus would call it, the kingdom of God, under God's lordship, because the way that you have a kingdom is you have a king. And if you have a king, then there must be some kingdom to follow. Those that are under the kingdom of God are in the kingdom of God, that are under the king's authority, submit themselves to his lordship. He's king. That will be Matthew's intention to properly present Jesus as king. King over all. There's another kingdom, a kingdom of darkness. If you will, ruled by the enemy. It's a lot more deceitful. The problem is, you don't have to see yourself under the enemy's rule to be under the enemy's rule. All you have to do is not be under the Lord's. So we can be anarchic, or anarchic, however you want to say that. You could think that you're the ruler or the pilot of your own ship, the master of your own destiny. But like it or not, you're going to serve someone. Either the Lord to eternal benefit or the enemy of your souls to your own destruction. And that choice by God's gift to you, has been granted to you with your will. You have the opportunity to choose one side or the other. But you better know the missions. The mission of the enemy, by the way, Jesus tells us in John 10 that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his, that's his ambition. That is the figurehead. His mission statement to steal you, to kill you, and to destroy you. The way that the kingdom is represented, by the way, Jesus makes clear in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, when he says that the Gentile world, that the rulers lord over the people. And in the enemy's world, it is about lordship, territory, overrule, domination. 
Jesus has such a problem with this within the church that there's a term used twice, at least, in the book of Revelation, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The problem is you'd be very hard-pressed to find a place called Nicolae for which the Nicolaitans would come from. But some of you can actually take half of that word when you look at your shoe. The word Nike, or Nike, as we might say here, or Nike in its original, means victory. Laity, like some of you are familiar with lay leaders, laity means common people. So when you put those two things together, it is the ruler or victory or rulership over the common people. Jesus, by the way, makes clear he hates that. How many things can you think of where Jesus simply says he hates it? So there is an empire out there, and the whole idea of it is you can rule, you can lord over. And Jesus says, but let that not be so with you. You want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to have to get underneath, not on top. You're going to have to get in the boat and row, not get on the top and steer. He says, whoever wants to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven needs to be a servant of all. Very, very different manners of going about it. And I want you to recognize that the battle between these two camps has been going on since the fall of man or even before with Lucifer himself who said, I will exalt myself and sit on the side of the north. I will rule over the people of God. From the very beginning, the problem was lordship. So please understand there are two very clear camps one where we willingly submit ourselves underneath the king, and the other where we are lied to in thinking somehow we can be the lord of our own world. And ever since the battle has begun, the mission practically will be to rescue someone from the other camp. To deliver someone from the other camp. Now, Jesus' ministry, by the way, again, he came that we would have a life more abundantly. And then he says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that he has come to seek and to save. So there's our difference. On one side, you have God's camp. Those who are blessed by, endowed, protected, and loved by the king. And in being loved by the king... Our heart now is to go into the other camp and to rescue people out of it. Jesus said, by the way, that even the gates of hell would not prevail against us. I mean, that's to tell you how deep in the camp we could go. But you're probably aware that the enemy does the same. He will seek to go and infiltrate the camp and pull away people for himself. As a matter of fact, John makes that clear. When it tells us, by the way, in First John, that you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, but even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Oh, they went out from us, but they were never really of us, for if they were really of us, they would have remained. Paul, when he was about to leave the Ephesian elders, he meets with them in Miletus on his way over to Jerusalem for his arrest. He says, I want you to know that after my departure, savage wolves will come, not sparing the flock. And people will rise up, by the way, he warns Timothy, that will seek to draw away disciples after themselves, not after Jesus. 
So there will always be this bantering until the Lord finally puts an end to it. The question is, which camp are you in? Interesting, if we were to think of anyone in the Old Testament that would be a figurehead of that kind of deliverance, immediately my mind goes to Moses, who sees a group of people burst in the crucible of Egypt and they're becoming mighty in number but completely held as slaves until a man steps in and pulls them out. Now it's important to note that in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there were two characters so high lit that 90% of the text is given primarily to them. And that is this Joseph character that we see from 25 to 50 of Genesis, who, by the way, we've already seen developed in the last couple of weeks, and Moses, who gets really, in essence, the next four books. Interesting, neither of them are of the lineage of the Messiah, but they both serve the purpose of being, in essence, a savior or a deliverer. A deliverer. But at the end of Moses' life, we have this text in Deuteronomy 18. And that gets our heads a bit spinning because we have so much of Moses' life, much more than we do of much others. And it tells us this in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Read along if you would. It should be behind me. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is, Mo- this is Moses speaking to the people. From your midst. From your brothers, him you shall hear, according to all you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, well, what you've spoken is good. I will rise, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he, hear, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. If you remember when they were asking John the Baptist who he thinks he is, there's a debate over whether he is the prophet, whether he is the Messiah. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet, definite article. Who is the prophet? The Deuteronomy 18. The dude from Deuteronomy 18. The prophet, like Moses, a delivering prophet. Interesting, when I look at a little bit of this, I get the idea of a few things about the guy. First of all, when I look at Moses, I realize that they had to escape by night. They needed to exit Egypt. It started, by the way, if you think about it, Moses starts the story in essence, grows not in the custody of his real dad. I think that's interesting. But perhaps most profoundly is the fact that during the birth of Moses, there was a massacre of children, of boys. Now, I get the idea from that. Pharaoh, the resident king, and if you will, the king of the darkness in that sense, isn't really fond of the fact that there perhaps could be a king risen up On the other camp, desires in no way to see the camp fortified and desires to murder the children, the boys. And that would seem sort of fine and dandy until I get to the book of Jeremiah. Now, if you're new to the Bible, if you close your Bible and open in the middle, chances are you'll get to the book of 
Psalms. If you go to the right, the next two big chunky books, you'll find the books of Isaiah and then you'll find the book of Jeremiah. Try to see if you can find the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 for a second. Some of you, you have your phone, so this will take you just a moment. You just have to figure out. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Rama. Can you say Rama? Rama means the high hill, by the way. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Continue to read. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back to the land, come back, sorry, from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Now, maybe you're looking at that and you say, well, I, I, obviously I, I can pull back to the concept of what took place back in Moses' day. There was a group of children that were murdered. There's a couple problems with it, because where were the children murdered with Moses' story? Egypt. Mercilessly, they were murdered in Egypt. But here, there's a couple things here. And the first is that tells us, notice that it says Rachel, and it was heard in Ramah. Well, why Rachel? I mean, why not Sarah? Isn't Sarah sort of, you know, Abraham's wife? Wouldn't she be kind of the matriarch of the whole thing? Why Rachel? Well, interesting, the reason why Rachel, I remind you, Rachel, by the way, is only the mother of two of the 12 tribes. I remind you of that, Judah and Benjamin. Interesting, because if in Genesis chapter 35, and if you want to try to turn there, go ahead, you know, have some fun with me if you would. That's our first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 35. We do read this. Oh, go ahead and get there. Genesis 35. Verse 19. Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is what? Bethlehem. No, I'm putting my clues together. Here's the clue I hear. That Rachel was buried right on the outskirts of Bethlehem. Okay, on the Benjamin side. That's the idea here of Ephraim. Okay, interesting, because Ramah is on the other side. But I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of contemplating all of this, and I'm going, okay, a high hill, Bethlehem. But there's a word that haunts me in all of this. And the word that haunts me is the word heard. Notice it says, a voice was heard, or a cry was heard. Notice how that's how that begins back in Jeremiah, by the way. Again, it says, a voice was heard in Rama. Lamentation and bitter weeping. The problem is, there are words for hearing. We're familiar with that. There are words like overhearing, and there are words for genuinely choosing to hear. My wife is gifted at sort of radar hearing. I'm not. You know, we could sit in a crowd full of people. It sounds like noise. 
I could hear a rhythm. I could write a song to the rhythm I hear in it, but I can't necessarily pick it. And my wife would be like, can you believe what that woman said? And I'm like, what in the world woman are you speaking? There's like 400 women in this room. The way she talked to her child. Okay, that limits it. Now I have to start looking around to see who has got a child with them. You know, and it's amazing how she could just do, 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 and just pick something out. She can choose to listen. It's, I think it's like a super sense or something. I, on the other hand, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of the classic, well, oh, there's people. And, and I'm overhearing, but she's hearing. Does that make sense? But there's a word beyond that. Any of you who have ever been responsible for something and you've asked for help know the difference. When you've actually talked to someone, you say, I need some help with this. And somebody comes up and goes, yeah, okay. And you start, and you know somewhere about after about ten words, they glaze over. They kind of got the gist of what kind of needed to be done, but what they're not listening to are the details. Does that make sense? So you're kind of like, I need this thing done, and here's how I need it done. And all they heard was, I need this done, and this, and that, and the how, they'll figure it on their own. Well, they're not really listening the way you want them to. What you want is for them to listen with the intent of, of actually enacting it. Does that make sense? Well, that's the same word, of course, that God would choose when he says in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That word here is not over here. It isn't just kind of observe a conversation. This is, I, now stop everything. I want you to focus on me and hear these details. Listen to this, because I want you to live this out now. I want your love. Right? That's the word here. And now I go, oh, that's a little weird. A voice was heard, but it was heard to enact. A voice was genuinely listening, not just to, but it appears as if the voice was genuinely listening for lamentation and bitter weeping. A voice listening for lamentation and bitter weeping this isn't someone just it isn't like there's a loud cry out there because something really horrible happened someone's really listening to hear this someone by the way on raman what does rama mean again a high hill some high hill someone on a high hill is listening for not just sadness not just crying those are different words but bitter weeping and lamentation well, lamentation, the word for lamentation, we know that when someone laments, it's usually because of death. But bitter weeping takes us beyond that. Now it's an unjust death. Now it's an innocent death. That's where weeping becomes bitter. Now I'm putting these pieces together. I'm playing Sherlock for a moment, right? But I'm putting these pieces together in Jeremiah. And in these pieces in Jeremiah, what I hear is this. Somebody up on a high hill is listening for people for crying out, for genuine wailing because somebody's being murdered that doesn't deserve to be, someone's being murdered, they don't deserve it. And, and they're crying over this and it's somewhere around Bethlehem. Did you get that? Rachel's crying because they're not anymore. And notice they, children. And that's my last clue. These are kids now. These aren't adults. These are children. And these children, not just one, but many, plural, are no longer. There is a bitter weeping. Someone's listening for that bitter weeping. Are you with me on that? Let's go back to our text in Matthew 2. The situation again begins with the, the wise men who have walked through 
Jerusalem. They've walked through there looking for the Messiah, the king of the Jews, for which, again, the idea of it, that's the king of the good camp, if you will. On the other side of it, Herod, who's playing the role of the king of the bad camp, if you will, the, the kingdom of this world, has, is very threatened. And I want you to realize a couple of things as we draw into our text now in verse 12. One of those things is that the wise men did not come to Herod. You're aware of that. But how do you think Herod took that? They came with gifts, but not for Herod. They brought an entourage, but not for Herod. They came to worship, but not Herod. And Herod is not happy about it. Herod came to lord over everyone because that's the way that works. And what's clear is he can't be lording over everyone if a bunch of guys show up with gifts to worship someone other than him. That is not permissible as far as Herod is concerned. So, in verse 12 it says, Being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, why did God warn them? Was it to save Jesus? No, Herod is going to want to kill Jesus either way. He's already found out where he is. He's in Bethlehem. He just doesn't know specifically where. I genuinely believe the reason that God warned the Magi was so that they didn't get killed because they were a threat too. They were not bowing down to Herod and Herod didn't like that. And there's a way to handle that. Ask Cain how he handled Abel. Since the beginning with those two camps, the enemy camp has always sought to slaughter its competition. It shouldn't surprise us that that would be the story of Jesus. So imagine speaking to him at night. But that's, by the way, sort of a, well, that seems to be one of the things God does quite often. Speaking to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or Laban. To Joseph's fellow prisoners, to Joseph in dreams, to Gideon in dreams, to Solomon in Gibeon, ask anything, I'll give it to you, in a dream. At night, like the calling of Samuel, here I am, you called me. I wonder why is it that God spends so much time perhaps often speaking to us at night? Psalm 1, when it talks about the person who is blessed by the Lord, he says in verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. In Psalm 63, 6, it says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you, and the night watches. In Psalm 92, it speaks of declaring God's loving kindness in the morning and His faithfulness every night. And I realize one of the reasons that God does this is because it's the only time we're quiet enough to listen. I can get so... I mean, if the world were silent, I would make it noisy. Does that make any sense? I mean, some of us, if you're like me, if all of my normal duties fell off my plate, I would quickly replace them with other things. I'm addicted to doing. The one thing that I'm sure I don't do well. And there are many things I don't do well. I just tend not to take inventory of them. But the one thing I'm well aware that I don't do well is rest. 
God often has to force a Sabbath on me to get me to stop. But when I get quiet, I expect the Lord to talk. I just expect him to say. And by the way, I hope you, your relationship with God isn't as sick and twisted as to think that if God were to speak, the only thing he'd have to say is a rebuke. Unless you're living the kind of life where that really needs to happen. In which case, I pray that's not the case either. Lately, the Lord has been waking me up every night at about four. The problem is, is that, is it amazing how I can easily go to concerns of life and play out all kinds of scenarios in my head, but getting my mind wrapped around a scripture at that time takes a great deal of effort. It's almost like the moment I wake up, though it's quiet everywhere else, my mind says, oh, this is too quiet. Let's get something happening before we can hear something else. It's like my head iPod starts playing. Does that make any sense? Oh, man, I expect the Lord. It's like, Lord, break through this noise, this clamor of life, and steal me away. Because clearly, for whatever purpose, I'm awake. Let's make good use of this time. In Psalm 119, 148, it says, My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. I do love that. Well, at night now, these wise men have been warned, don't go back to Herod. God is protecting the wise men. You've worshipped, in Herod's mind, the wrong one. Though we're all agreeing they were the opposite. They were worshipping the right one. And so they take off, and at that point, God has a message now to speak to another person at night. Joseph, by the way, though we'll never read him speak a word in Scripture, one thing we do realize is that this guy gets an awful lot of activity at night. Four different times at night, God's going to tell him something. And the first three, an angel speaks to him at night. The fourth time, it says, being warned by God. Now, that could still be through an angel or otherwise it doesn't make clear. But four different times, I, I mean, if I were Joseph, there would be a point now where I just kind of expect God to say something the moment I go to sleep. And this is what we read in verse 13. Now, when he had departed, they, that's the, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. In verses 8 through 21, nine different times we'll read the term young child. Do you see it there? Young child. The term is paidon, or padas, it's actually paidion in the Greek. Why is this important? Because if we go back for just a moment... When the wise men showed up, look at verse 11. When they, that's the wise men, the magi, had come into the house, they saw the young child. When they showed up, Jesus, first of all, notice that they showed up in the house, not the barn or the, the cave. They found this young child, Pideon. Now, let me give you a couple of occasions, by the way, where this word is used. And, well, and let me say this first. In the Gospel of Luke, when the angel speaks, and we don't know if it's the same one or not, we, we know there's a Gabriel involved here, 
But when we were talking originally to Mary, when the shepherds were contacted in Luke 2, remember they said you'll find a specific sign, a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. The word for babe, by the way, is the word brephas. Brephas paideon. Do they sound the same? No, because they're not. I mean, the same as chalk and cheese are the same. No, the reason I say that is, is that when the shepherds came, they found an infant, they found a newborn. That's the word there, brephas. But this word paideon that we see here with the wise men showing up, let me give you a couple places where we see this word. In Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Matthew 19, 14, when the children are trying to come to Jesus, and Jesus says, let the little children come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that word clearly, that's, those are children, they have to be at least big enough to come to him. Not let the mothers carry the children, let the children come. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, when Luke, the one person who makes clear that he's giving a linear account of Jesus' life, tells us that the child grew. And then, of course, grew in stature and form in grace and faith of God, uh, with men and God. <clears throat> in that, it was right before his bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah is 12, and the word was used. Interesting, though, perhaps you're familiar in Mark chapter 5, verses 39 to 41, a guy named Yerus. He was a synagogue leader, and his daughter was dying. Jesus, by the way, if you remember the story, is on his way to the house, and a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then as he continues to step forward, people say, don't trouble the masses. This is a loose paraphrase. Again, don't just believe me. Search the scriptures. Don't just, but he says, you know, don't trouble the master. The, the girl's died. And he says, oh, don't. Don't stop believing. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. So he turns to the girl, ultimately gets to the house. They kick out all the mourners. And he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Does anyone remember how old she was? I'll give you a hint. It was part of this story before this. She was 12 years old. She was as old as the other woman was bleeding. Interesting for that. The term that was used to describe her is the same term. In one case, it speaks, by the way, of little children that are sort of toddlers. In another case, it speaks of somebody nearly 12. And in another case, or, or at least in between, in another case, it speaks of someone 12. And the only reason I say that is that this Jesus that's on his way to Egypt here is going to be somewhere in a toddler stage. He's somewhere, you know, in essence, if he's in nappies at all, he may be able to pull him off and on himself. There's your idea. Mommy, Wow. I'm a big kid now. But there's a part of me that, I, that hits me the hardest when I look at this story here, when I look at Joseph. By the way, I do also want you to notice that not only is this term young child used so many times, by the ways we see here, but it's interesting. Did you notice in the nine times it was used, four of those times, almost half of them, also says, and his mother? What's missing in that statement? I remind you, he's speaking to Joseph. Nowhere in this text do we ever read God say, take your son. Take the young child and his mother. But he never says, take your son. It's an interesting thought. And here's the thing. Somewhere down the line, now I want to remind you, this guy was just, I mean, let's like backtrack and backstory a little piano music for that sort of reminiscent backstory. You know. But in all of this, follow me. 
this guy was just engaged to a girl that he that was really downright noble. She was a decent girl. She had great character from what we can tell. And God even took great notice of that. That's how this started. In ordinary life, things seem kind of relatively mellow. Things seem relatively, you know, just like, you know, you kind of kind of have in your ideas what kind of furniture from Ikea you're going to start with and what you'll graduate to as things kind of move forward. You know, what the house is going to look like you're going to build and what the, you know, the, the girl's daydreaming about the wedding ceremony and the guy sort of doesn't care about the pattern of the doily, but he's going to, you know, he's working on the house and the things are happening and then the whole thing goes, bam, and it just gets flipped up. It's like, it's sort of like a house of cards and someone just went like this and threw his hands up because all of a sudden she's pregnant. God did it. And his life will never be the same. God didn't even give Joseph a vote in this. Other than this, he said, Joseph, it's your choice, but you should take this girl and marry her. An angel tells him that, by the way. And he has the choice, but he's a decent guy and he does what God tells him. And he's going to take this child that's not, that God's not going to call his son because God calls his own son. But I mean, imagine what it would be like. Is there a part of you that starts to think, wow, God gave me the privilege of being able to serve his child. I want you to realize that's what I believe. I get to wake up and go, wow, God gave me the privilege of being able to serve you as children. What a gift that is. But here, Jesus, God in the flesh, I mean, the difference is, you know, I would start asking him questions as soon as he was old enough to talk to see if he even knew the answers right away. You know, I mean, there's a difference. It isn't like I would ask, although I would have asked Ruthie questions when she was younger. I still do because her answers are hilarious. But that's another story. But please get the idea here that his life was flipped upside down. And now everybody, you know, think about the rumors that spread throughout town and as the rumors spread throughout town, people are going to look. And, and, you know, and, and let's face it, even if they're not whispering about you, if you hear whispering, you assume it's about you now. And then there's this tax thing, and you have to leave Nazareth, and you have to go down to Bethlehem, and your wife's pregnant. And then you can't even find a place. It's like there's no hospital. There's no inn. This poor girl has to give birth somewhere near a feeding trough. How turned upside down is that? So somewhere finally down the line, you make your way into a house. And then there's this knock at the door. And it's guys that show up you would never have thought. Company's coming. Who is it? Looks like some really rich guys. There's some limos parked out in the front. Everyone's got dark glasses and a suit, and they've got their kind of the earpiece going like this. Going, Stop, he's entering the building. You know, I mean, okay. And then they come in. It's like, well, what are they here for? I don't know. I mean, it isn't like Mary expected them. And then they sort of show up, and they're like, oh, here, by the way, Here's my debit card, you know, and, and like here's a whole big chunk of cash, you know, and you kind of go, uh, do I have to claim this? You know, I mean, it's like think about what you would do in a moment like that. And then they fall down before the baby and they worship him and then they're gone. And you're like the dust settles and you're holding this glob of cash going, uh, what now? Well, I don't know. Maybe we should put this in some place safe. Now, what would that be? You dig a hole, right? You dig a hole. You throw it all in there. You put a carpet over it and hope no one saw those guys show up. Like, no one's going to see that. And then you go to sleep. And then Joseph, notice, by the way, though Joseph is not Jesus' father, he's still Mary's husband. And because he's Mary's husband, God's going to tell him to make the choices. 
Did you notice that? He still honored his leadership. He says, you need to get out of here. You need to get out of here now because the baby's in danger and we need him out. So imagine that story. So now Joseph has to wake up his wife and go, it doesn't say that the angel spoke to both of them in a dream, just to Joseph. He's like, oh, honey, get up. What, what, what? Is it the baby? Is he hungry? No, worse. We need to get out of here. Now I remind you, they're in Bethlehem. Where, where do we need to go? Where, where, where are we going? Egypt. Egypt? Egypt's like 400 miles away. And we've traveled 50, 60 miles, you know, or really, to be honest, as many as 90, it all depends on the route you take, to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Okay, that was a rough road, but nothing like this one. And can you imagine Mary going, well, who told you this? Well, an angel. Really? Well, wait a minute, but what, the, what did the angel say? The angel said, get up right now, get out and go to Egypt. Well, are you sure? Are you sure this wasn't like a lying angel or something? Well, it's funny that when he told me to marry you, that was okay. But now, is you know, I mean, think of what you could be saying. And, and like the, the funny part about all of that is just, just to think of the real life of this is somewhere in it. And it says they immediately get up and run. So now it's like you've got to scrape up the baby, grab whatever you can that travels. And it isn't like they had those cool little handily things that we have today, you know, that somehow like RoboCop slip into the Iron Man pram, you know, where everything kind of is like, and then you can like jog with it. There's none of that in those days. You know, what you've got is basically a cloth you strap over you like a toga and you slip the baby in there and hope the baby doesn't slosh when you're running. I mean, that's what we got going on here. And off they head to Egypt. And it's at that moment, and please hear me, because this is the gist of this, that if I were Joseph, I think there's a part of me at that moment I'd start thinking, so I guess this is just what life's going to be now. It's going to be like getting up and running and moving around and, you know, we were in Nazareth and things were quiet. Now look what happened. God has this beautiful way of mucking up your entire life for his glory that you'll never look back and regret. And I just start to think about all these people in Scripture. That their life was like ordinary. You know, they were doing like relatively normal things for the time. We don't even read about what Abraham was doing necessarily when God spoke to him and told him, Hey, you're 75, it's time to get up and go. Let's go. Grab your wife. That's it. Let's go. Where? I'll tell you when you get there. It's not an awful lot of details. Do you know my wife? I think we should have more. Jacob, I know you've been dwelling in the tents with mom, but I've got a bigger plan. Let's get you out and let's get going. Joseph, I'm going to show you that you're going to rule over your brothers. Now, God never told Joseph to tell his brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but the 11th kid of 12 brothers, telling the 10 older brothers that you're going to rule over them is, I don't see how that's asking for anything but trouble, but anyways. Moses, of course, leading the sheep and then seeing a burning bush in the middle of the hot desert sun. And the bush talks to him. That would be my first clue. I'm losing my mind. And it tells me to take off my sandals. And I'm thinking, in this sand, you're on fire and I should take my sandals off. I'm thankful it was him that was there. The nation Israel, when God decided he wanted to pull them out of Egypt, 
it wasn't going to come without great duress. David, from following the sheep, probably a 15-year-old kid, to spending as much time as he's been alive running for his life because the king that's already incumbent has no intention of stepping off the throne. The calling of God disrupts the sedate but unimpacting life to rattle the earth for eternity. And when I look at these people, guys that were washing their nets or fixing their nets or mending their nets, mending their, tending their tax booth, living life, they left their padded lined couch shackles of the familiar for the brave horizon of the advancing camp of God. And as a result, they left their indelible etchings on the tree trunk of time. If Adam had never, I'm sorry, if, if Abraham had never left, he would have only been Abram and we would have never known about him. Like every other person who lived in Ur that we don't know about. David had not stepped forward in the calling that God placed on his life ultimately, although he was pretty much flung into it. Or Moses had not answered the burning bush. He would have tended sheep into obscurity for the rest of the time and we wouldn't have known of him. If we had known anything, he would be known as the, uh, as the guy who killed an Egyptian in his rage and that would have been about it. Because man, when you actually take the calling of God, Expect every part of your life to be upheaved because you're going to have to leave a camp to do that. And it seems like there's no real middle ground. You know, there was a guy, and he was a TV preacher. And most of you probably don't know who he is, and maybe better that way. But it's a, I mean, he was known ultimately. I mean, the, the guy was like a, a swindler, and he was, he was, I mean, he was kind of one of those, oh, with you, and he'd go talk like this. And he was like, mm, and he always kind of had these expressions. He was, oh, I can feel, I can feel the spirit. Ooh, you know, that kind of thing. And he's like, oh, and if you send me some money, oh, I'm going to, you know, that kind of, and he was just flamboyant and crazy. And it's like, and it's like the, the guy, it's like, and I don't know if he ever did anything for the Lord. I never followed him for a good reason. Uh, and those kind of people just make me crazy. And I, it's better I don't watch that. But it's, it's, I, I just watched it the way this guy kind of went after it and the craziness he went through and all of that. And it's like, and then he got busted ultimately for just getting all the people's money, ripping them open, taking all of their money and leaving. But he didn't leave. It's like, okay, so what's he known for? Well, I'll tell you what he's known for. He's not even known for the crazy stuff he said or didn't say. He's not even known for the crime that he committed. If you go on YouTube, he's called the farting preacher. Some of you have heard this. Because of his faces, someone has dubbed in fart noises. Forgive me for being a little off color, but they dubbed in fart noises. And they're like 10 million views or more because he's like, can you just feel it? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, and they just kind of went with it. And then there was like the fart referring preacher too, because the guy had so many of those images. And the, here's the funny thing. I'm sitting here as I'm, because there's a thing called teens react and YouTubers react and they watch this and they, they video their reaction to watching this. And it's fascinating to me because my daughter like, you need to see this. And I'm watching this. And the reason is I'm thinking this guy is going to be known throughout all of eternity as the farting preacher. He's not going to be known for any life being changed. He's not going to be known. He may not even be known for his crime. It's just like I think that there's some kind of strange, humor, humorous, you know, funny, poetic justice in all of that. 
I mean, imagine someday this guy's going to pass away and stand before God, and I could just see the people at the pearly gates going, oh, I saw your videos, you know. Anyways. And you know, you know, back to the point, you know that if you say yes to Jesus and do more than just acknowledge him but follow him, he's going to rip up your life. You know it. So will you go? Will you go? In Acts chapter 14, Paul is now returning back to church or to, to cities where he had been deported, where he fled from getting jumped and then was stoned to death. And he goes through those same places. And his message is this. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. It's a narrow road. People go, isn't that narrow? You go, yeah, I guess you're really, you're kind of getting something out of this, aren't you? Is that difficult? Yes, it is difficult. Jesus told me it was. That's why few find it. That's why I don't think the Lord's really blessed when we go, well, that's the easier route. Why don't we take that one too? Like, is that really the best you got? Is the easiest? Thieving foxes have holes. Seed-stealing birds have nests. The dead will bury their own dead. I'm bidded to follow him. And would you say as Joseph, well, I, I guess this is, this, is, this is what we do. Interesting, by the way, when a, when a king is born, the primary emphasis until he becomes a man is protecting him. You're aware of that? You probably even heard it said that even here in England, the rule of a wife of a future king is to give him an heir and a spare. And you protect them. Like Josiah, you protect them until it's time to present them as king. That will be Matthew as he shows Jesus as the king. That's his whole point until Jesus is manhood in the next chapter. Protect the king. And Luke's story is the emphasis, of course, is on Jesus being human. You present a child. You present him to be circumcised to name him at eight days. You present him for his bar mitzvah at 12. And then ultimately gets presented as a man. And the point, the reason I say that is that's exactly what you see in Luke's account as he presents Jesus as humankind. He's presented here. He's protected. So listen to this. And we'll move forward with the text. Listen. If you want to calm, orderly, comfortable, non-challenging existence without resistance or much, nor much change, well, then the calling of God is not for you. But you will only die rich with regret. But if you want to see the transforming power of the resurrection, the metamorphosis from the mundane to the magnificent, then get out of the queue, kick holes in the darkness with me in the name of Jesus, and amass the incorruptible and immeasurable treasures of heaven, the priceless jewels of human souls being set free as they leave the camp of darkness into the arms of Jesus. That's your choice today. I've made mine. I am following Jesus. I expect, I don't look for it, but I expect opposition. And I'm not fool enough to say, is that all you got? 
But I am wise enough, not that I'm wise entirely, but I'm wise enough to turn to the one to whom the battle belongs and say, it's for you. Because the battle is not mine. It's the Lord's. And I don't know if you're aware, but he happens to be the heavyweight, undefeated champion of the universe. And that's who I follow. And that's who I serve. And that's my king. And this poser that wants to set up his own camp can do anything he wants and think he's got it going on. But you can, you know, I've learned people can believe their delusions, but it doesn't make them right. Joseph gets up and he goes. Where in Egypt, we don't know. But it's quite possible he may have gone to Alexandria. And the reason is that of the three major cities that had a very large population of Jewish people, one of them was Alexandria. One, of course, was Jerusalem. One was Rome. And Alexandria, Egypt, which had about 1.1 million Jewish people. Here's the difference. Joseph had left Nazareth a poor, a poor carpenter. He had gone to Bethlehem on whatever he may have had remaining, may have had to work to try to find a place to stay. But he goes to Egypt in style. The man's got, now we don't know. I mean, it doesn't say anywhere that God never gives us the accounting of what happened to the gold, frankincense, or myrrh. The, the, this frankincense or more doesn't, myrrh doesn't seem to be used on Jesus' burial. There's another rich guy that will sort of sponsor that as a beneficiary named Joseph of Arimathea. But they did need it to get to Egypt. And it just seemed to me like, here's the strange thing. They're going to be in Egypt, and they're going to be in a community in all essence. Now, think about this. Nobody knows. Nobody there knows that Mary was pregnant by God. Nobody, all they see is a woman and a, her husband and a baby. They could start all over again. But there is a problem. And the problem is the Savior is not going to be in Egypt his entire life. And that's what the angel said. Stay there until I tell you otherwise. So they do. So, but imagine during that time, and I just think maybe God just gave them a reprieve. I mean, they went from some pretty rough circumstances, and God just in his love for them, just maybe gave them some time to heal. Do you remember Paul and the last two chapters of the book of Acts? Tossed to and fro, we read tempest tossed. Two weeks, man, on a, on a boat that's ultimately going to shatter in front of them or, or underneath them. And then they wind up on the island of Malta. It's raining. It's cold. We've been to Malta. You know what it was when we were there? It was summer. It was cold and it was raining. So I get the feeling. And so they were there and there's, they made a fire and Paul's grabbing sticks and a viper jumps out and bites his arm. And it's dangling on his arm. He's like, oh, come on. I'm just trying to grab some sticks, man. Keep the fire going. We don't read any of that. Paul shakes off the serpent into the fire. And now everybody looks at him. Nobody at that point, before that, he was just a guy grabbing sticks. But now that he got bit, now people look. Let me just warn you, when you get bit, not because you jumped in the snake pit in your own stupidity, but because you were following and serving Christ and then you got bit, people watch closely. And it says that the natives, who apparently were very familiar with with the viper, it says they were watching him that he might, expecting him to swell up, fall down, and die. And let me just say that's exactly what they're going to expect from you. To swell up. What happens when you swell up? You're full of yourself. You know, you get bit. I'm serving the Lord and something happens. Do you think you're fine? You don't know how hard I've worked and I've taken, no, I've written down everything I've ever done. You know, and it's like, you just, man, you're just like turning into like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. 
wow, you're gaining weight. What is all that? Oh, that's you too. I mean, that's what happens, right? You swell up or you fall down. You know what happens is, forget it, man. I'm done with this. I'm just going to go back to my drugs. I'm going to go back to my... I'm gonna, you know how that is. And then you die. That's what they expect. Interesting, because Paul had been in the shipwreck, and then this happened. They said, oh, there's a universal justice. Clearly what happened here is that the universe has not allowed the guy to live because clearly he's a murderer because though he escaped the shipwreck, clearly now the universe karma, you know, got him. But then when he doesn't die, they're like, oh, well, I guess he's a god. Well, there's a little bit of an extreme. But can I just say from the perspective of the people who didn't have proper training, what they saw was God in him. They just didn't know how to put it. Interesting, because of that, Paul gets then moved because the leading, what we read is the leading citizen of the island, which that tells you there's no sort of constructed, you know, organized government. But the guy, his name is Publius, which, by the way, means popular. Well, of course. And in other words, I mean, this is like the guy that owns the Hilton. And so what happens, he gets invited over there. And now Paul went, now look at the reprieve God gives Paul. He went from a two weeks of being tossed around, barfing his guts out, to being thrown onto a, you know, to a shore, a foreign shore that he didn't even know where in the world he was. He's, and then he gets bit by a serpent. Everyone just sort of stares at him now, and he's just, he goes back to serving. And then they're like, you need to go meet Publius. And he's like, ooh, okay, whatever. And so and then he gets there, and the guy like opens up the Hilton, and he says, I tell you what, man, you get the presidential suite, room service, here's your remote, and here's a king-size bed, and the spa's downstairs. And what we read next is that Though he's there, it says, but Publius's father was sick with dysentery. Until, by the way, the last 15 years, dysentery was the number one killer in third world countries. Do you know what it's been replaced by? AIDS. But you are aware of what dysentery is, right? What it does to you? Can I just say, forgive me for this. It puts the dye in diarrhea. It's really, you, you, it, it destroys your stomach and you, you, you dehydrate from that. Now, the reason I say that is, here are our two temptations, beloved, as we start talking about being in the camp of God and following him. On one side, it's the trials, and for some of you, that will be your thing. That'll be your Achilles. Hard times drive you away from God. Others of us here, hard times will drive you on your face, and that's like the, the worst thing the enemy could do was put you in a trial. Because, man, you're just clinging to Jesus with everything. Okay, but maybe for those people, the danger is going to be in great comfort. So I remind you, we don't have running water here. This isn't like there's an advanced sewer system on Malta. There's a guy and his dad. Can you get the image a little bit here? And now you're on like, you know, four inches of memory foam with your remote and 612 channels. Your feet are up. And you, and you hear, well, the guy's dad has diarrhea. And he's dying. Which one of you wants to get up now? You're like, you don't understand room services in 10 minutes. I'm about to get my lobster troubadour. You know? Oh, no. Paul gets up. And I love this. He lays hands on him. I don't want to develop that too much. But if you have a broken shoulder and people lay hands on you, where do they lay hands? Your shoulder. And here's the point is that in the midst of all of this that Paul is doing, God gave him a reprieve. But even in his reprieve, Paul would not step down from what God was calling him to do. In our text here, Joseph is now on his way. Let's close this up. Let's wrap this around. Look at what it says. It says that the Lord appeared to Joseph. We're back now. 
believe it or not, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod seeks the young child to destroy him. So he got up, he rose. He took the young child and his mother at night, notice it was immediate, departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod. Herod, by the way, so you know, Herod, uh, four foot four, four and a half feet tall, kidney failing, body stenching, breath reeking, internally wormed, midsection gangrened, insane. Josephus says this about him again. He had a fever, though not a raging one, an intolerable itching of the whole skin, continuous pains in the intestines, tumors of the feet as in dropsy, inflammation of the abdomen, and gangrene of the privy parts. Ooh, you really got to get God angry to get there. He will order again, Salome, his daughter, to kill the leaders, which she will not do. He will order the death of the high priest and his family at his death, so people will cry at his funeral. They didn't do that either. He dies in 69, I'm sorry, he dies in 4 B.C. He's 69 years old. He dies in 4 B.C. in Jericho, while Archelaus, his son, is drunk and out partying. And that's what we read here, that they were out there until that happened. And Herod dies. Now, this fulfills, by the way, in verse 15, our text in Hosea 11, where it says, Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Now, stop. Quick moment, and we'll get right back in. There is, God has this beautiful way of presenting paradoxes, paradoxy, for the purpose of actually showing you you're going to have to exercise faith and not just understanding. Does that make any sense? God places things in such a way that your brain cannot wrap around both sides. They seem like they're two polar opposites you can't shove together. And God says, I'm just big enough to be both. You ever had anyone ask, how could God be on earth as Jesus, praying to the Father in heaven? How could God be both places? And, you know, we want to argue that, like, logically. But listen to yourself. Listen to the question. How could God be in two places at one time? Is that difficult for you? How is God helping you and me at the same time? He's everywhere at once. Is that really a problem? It's amazing how we try to reason things that really simply by the act of faith say, um, you said God, that should be your answer right there. And here's one of them. He's going to be called a Nazarene, but he has to be called out of Egypt, but he has to be born in Bethlehem. How does that work out? He probably wouldn't have written this script either. But God knew what he was doing. And it all is exactly like he said. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. That's where they were. Sixty times in scripture, we'll read out of Egypt, by the way. Verse 16, meanwhile, back at the camp, this is what happened with Herod. When he saw that he was deceived or mocked, literally, or played with or trifled with, the word there again is impazzo, that he was exceedingly angry. Do you see that in verse 16? Lian and Epimaho. Leon means the very chief, the emblem, the poster child for. Epimaho means to be in an extreme rage. So the poster child for extreme rage is what Herod does here. He was exceedingly angry, set forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem. All its districts who two years old and under, according to the time in which he determined of the wise men. The time of what? When they said they saw the star. It seems to me that Herod appeared to think that when the star first appeared, the child was born. Now, I can't even tell you that that's not the case. 
But I can tell you what appears is that that's what Herod does. And to, to hedge his bets, he's going to kill every boy, Bethlehem, and the surrounding regions. The surrounding regions. What surrounds, what surrounds the regions? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But what's interesting in all of that as well is today in Orthodox families. Hear me on this. One of the places we visit when we're in Israel is a place called, well, Kifarkidim. It's a place which means ancient village. And it is a traditional, very Orthodox community. In this Orthodox community, I remember because one of the things we like, we make our own, we make cheese there and we make our own bread. It's, it's kind of a, sort of a hands-on fun place. And they had this cute little girl. She's about two and a half years old, really, really long hair, beautiful long hair. And she was kind of helping us with everything, you know. And, and all of a sudden, as we're starting to sort of put our, our bread, we're stretching it and then putting it on this big pan. It looks like a giant upside-down wok, you know, so that we can cook our bread. We look over, and she drops trowel and just stands up and starts peeing. It wasn't a girl at all. It was a boy. Now, let's be honest. When a child's first born, often it's the case. It isn't like they're born, like Daniel was probably born with facial hair. But for the rest of us, it is. you kind of look and, you know, it's that awkward moment, right? You're like, you don't want to say cute, but you don't want to say pretty, and you don't want to say handsome. You're like, and you don't want to say it, right? You know, you know, so you just kind of hope that the traditional blue or pink's going to help you out, or there's a bow or something in the non-hair head or whatever. And you just be like, oh, what a beautiful baby. Give me something to work with, right? I mean, but... But there's something interesting about the fact that the Jewish people have these. And so, so I'm, I'm speaking with the guy who runs the place, Menachem is his name. We've kind of built a friendship by this point. And, he, and, and so I tend to ask him questions, and he'll say, well, what's your viewpoint as a Christian? And I, I think he appreciates the fact that I use scripture instead of just my opinion. But, uh, but and then I ask, so, so let me ask you something. What is the standard here? And he says, we don't allow boys to cut their hair for the first three years. I says, well, why is that, in your opinion? And he says, well, you know, there was the whole Moses thing, and they were going to kill boys. I says, well, then why three years? And he's like, I'm not really sure. I says, could it be because Herod killed every boy two years old and under? At that point, the most effeminate son would have been the one you would have preferred at that moment. And then he goes, you know, this fulfills exactly what Jeremiah said. Where did this take place? Bethlehem and its surrounding regions, which is where Rachel is buried. But listen, a voice was heard. Listen, somebody was listening from a high hill, listening for bitter weeping, lamentation and bitter weeping. Well, who do you think was listening? I think it was Herod. He was listening to his order get done. Because what high hill is just above Bethlehem? Jerusalem, which is where Herod was. Fascinating as a thought. And I could see Herod listening from his palace for the weeping and the wailing of children that are being slaughtered and the weeping of the women crying because their children are no more. Exactly like Jeremiah said 550, 500, 600 years beforehand. And I go, well, Matthew goes, you do realize God had promised this. But I remind you, the rest of the prophecy in Jeremiah was, don't worry, I'm going to bring my children back from captivity. 
What's interesting is where did Mary and Joseph go? They went to Egypt. And there were 1.1 million Jews there. I wonder if any came back with them. said, you know what? You need to see what's happening. So finally, we read Herod's dead. As Herod's dead, the angel appears then to Joseph again in a dream. Verse 20 says, Arise, take the young child and his mother. Notice again, not your son, but the young child and his mother. And go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. So he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in his father's stead, he was afraid to go there. And for good reason, by the way. Archelaus, by the way, means prince of the people. Like Ark, like architect. Ark means primary. Now, he's the son, by the way, of a mother named Malthus, who was a Samaritan. He was anointed just before dad was dead. He was in really bad shape. And let me give you the idea of this quickly on what he did. This guy went, and what happened is he had to go then to receive authority from Rome. So he has to go. But what he does is he was out. I remind you, Archelaus, when his dad dies, is in a drunken stupor outside of his dad's territory. Well, in his dad's dominion, but not where his dad was. So as he's drunk, what happens is he actually goes and he gives authority. and He he actually gathers a handful of Jews. Now, how many Jews do you gather that are allowed to be, they're called a minion? Do you remember? There are ten. And that comes all the way back from when Abraham was bargaining with God, if you will, haggling with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, if there were ten righteous, he wouldn't destroy the city. So ten allow you to have a synagogue, by the way, because ten righteous guys won't destroy a city. So with that in mind, <coughs> he gathers ten of these Jewish guys. He gives them some money, and he says, now I'm paying you for a moment in his drunkenness. Make, make it so that when I come back, everybody likes me. They hated him in the first place. He was already a drunken jerk when he did this. So he goes and receives the authority from Rome. And when he comes back, those guys actually just kind of squandered it, as you might have imagined, and tried to disappear. Instead, they've gathered a little bit of a crowd and they pleaded with Rome and said, please don't let this guy rule over us. This guy's terrible. So what he does as a result of that is he waits just a couple of days. He had just, just taken the throne. And as he waits, Passover is there. And as Passover happens, he goes into the temple with all of his entire army. And he slaughters arguably somewhere between three and 9,000 people. It all depends on the historian you listen to. Welcome. That's the beginning of his reign. So who wants to go visit that guy? Sounds like he's a chip off the old block, doesn't it? So listen to this. Jesus tells a story in Luke 19. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It says, A certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten mayas apiece and said, do business till I come. But the citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him and saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So ultimately he'll call the guys and call them account for what they've spent it on. And it says in the last verse, verse 27 of this particular story, it says, bring those enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them and slay them here right before me. And what happened is, is that Archelaus was standing over the entire proceeding as they slaughtered thousands of people in the temple. So you can imagine how well-received that was. So Mary and Joseph are on their way back, and what do they get? They get the idea that uh, we shouldn't be in Bethlehem because that's just within five-mile range of Jerusalem. Let's get out of here. So they went back up, and it says, verse 22, When they heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea over his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, being warned by God, uh, sorry, by God in a dream. He turned aside into the region of Galilee. 
They came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Of course, that's where they were originally from. That it might be fulfilled what was spoken of by the, and what's the word there? How is that different from the other times Matthew has quoted stuff? Can anyone see a difference? It's plural. Beautifully done. Notice it doesn't say it was spoken by the prophets. By the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. You go, where in scripture do we read that? The Hebrew word for Nazarene is a Natsar. As a matter of fact, a Christian in the Hebrew culture is called a Nazarot, a Nazarene. Natsar, by the way, means branch. Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch grown from its roots. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. The king or a king shall reign and prosper. This branch shall be a prospering, reigning king. Zechariah 3.8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Zechariah 6.12, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. For his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So now we put all the pieces together and close this. The prophets, it's going to be called the branch. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, they'll be called the branch. He'll be called a Nazarene. He'll be called a Nazar. But wait a minute. I thought he had to be called out of Egypt. But wait a minute. I thought he had to come out of Bethlehem. Strange. But it all worked out just fine, didn't it? Back to our point. In the end of it all, what is Herod known for today? In his day, by the way, he built the largest artificial port in the world. It rivals actually many of our ports today. You could actually still... most of it's an underground park. You can actually deep sea dive if you have your license and go dig for stuff down there. It's still a plan of mine one of these days. I just need a couple of people crazy enough to do it with me. I look around, I see some of your faces already, and I'm thinking, well, I'll start recruiting. But it reached out over a mile. Two arms that went out. And it was brilliant how he did it. He took this powdered lime and chalk, and he put this stuff in the water, and as it mixed with the water, it got heavy, and it sunk. And as it sunk, it turned the pressure of it was sinking, turned it into concrete. Brilliant how he did it. He built a temple, seven and a half stories tall. It's like a wonder of the world. But where's that temple today? Where's that port today? What's he known for now? Is the guy that tried to kill Jesus but didn't get to, but killed a whole lot of other children instead. That's what he's known for today. Well, that's his little carving on the tree trunk. Is that what you want? So let me ask you, what, what camp do you want to be in? Hey, you want to be comfortable and cool and gather all your stuff now and get buried with it? Good luck with that. This probably won't be the place for you because chances are I'll drive you mental because I'll be constantly talking about how great it is to be on the other camp. But if you stumbled into this room today or even if you're listening to this some other way and you realize you're not in the camp of the living God, well, then it's my mission today to say you can leave this camp with me. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your price, to pay all of your guilt, to buy your ticket out. And he went to your pit, died there, and then rose again from the grave on the third day. 
just like Scripture promised. Just like Moses did in a very physical way with Egypt, Jesus did with very hell itself. And he came out alive again and he said, who's coming with me? And I said, yes. And as we go to prayer now, I'm giving you the choice to say yes too. Will you accept this gift of Jesus? Will you say yes to this offer to leave the camp of your own slavery and darkness, to walk to the kingdom of light and be embraced by the kingdom of God, to be embraced by the arms of God himself and to be loved forever under this king? I guarantee you will not be sorry, but I do want to warn you, following him will cause, will your life is going to be flipped, like it or not, right side up. You just don't know what's upside down right now because you've been used to it. But today, God wants to change that, and he wants to deliver you, and he wants to set you free. And all he's asking is your permission. you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of this text, for the richness, Lord, of what you've spoken in my heart today. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've gone before us. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you have clearly shown this is no plan B, Since the beginning, it has been your intent clearly to deliver mankind. And Lord, your camp was first. Your kingdom first. Your throne everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. So so I'm very well aware of the fact that anything else is an imposter set up because the enemy can't create, he can only imitate. And I, I get that. I also recognize that we could be so deceived in the world that we had come from, that we don't even realize the lies that we're believing. But I also realize, Lord, that accepting your gift opens our eyes and we see the truth for what it really is. And we see you high and lifted up eternally so. But we also see not just that you reign over all, not that you were just the king over kings, over all kings, but you are also the king who loves us and the God who wants us, who came to earth to redeem us, to crawl into our pit and pull us out. And so, God, I just pray today, whether that's one Rahab on the wall, whether that's one leper who would come back to to seek you, that today we would cry out to you and say yes. And here within the sound of this voice, I'm going to pray a prayer. It is a prayer of acceptance, if you will, a prayer accepting the gift of Jesus, his price paid on the cross, but also, again, declaring him as our king. And if you've never done that or you're not sure if you have, say yes today and give him permission to transform your life, to upheave it, to make it beautiful, to pull you out of the the shackles you don't even know are on you right now give you life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And my sin makes me guilty before you. But I believe that you so loved me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, to pay my price, to deliver me out of the kingdom of darkness. And there on the cross, as he died, and the sky went dark, Clearly, as he said, tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. It was. But just like Scripture promised as well, on the third day he rose again, 
to show that even death itself could not hold him. Even my guilt wasn't so filthy that it could, it could in any way tangle him. But that he rose again to be the Lord and King of my life. And so I say, yes, if you really want to pay my bill, be my guest. If you want to be my Lord, then I give you the right to upheave my life, to transform my life in such a way that as I follow you now, make me somebody who impacts eternity, who rattles the fabric of the earth. As you transform lives, give me the privilege of watching you, the honor of watching you transform lives through these people, including myself, as I surrender to my, as myself to you for your usage. Here I am. I'm your tool now. I belong to you. I surrender in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. And Lord, for those who have prayed today, cement that in their hearts. Give them a hunger for your word. Give them a place in fellowship. Develop a beautiful conversation with them in prayer. And keep them at the cross where they know they are forever saved. I commit them to you in Jesus' name.